Animamim b'muna shalema, I believe with a complete understanding. Emuna shalema does not mean, <clears throat> I'm not sure, I think so, I, I, I kind of, emuna shalema means complete recognition, complete acknowledgement. I recognize there are immutable forces of nature. <clears throat> Rocks are very solid. Heavy objects tend to fall. Gases expand. I don't need to think about it. <clears throat> I don't need to contemplate it. It's a reality. The 13 animamins are supposed to be to us within that same category. Complete bedrock understandings, complete recognitions. And let's listen to this one of the animamins, the 12th. Animamin b'munashalema, I accept with a complete understanding, b'viyas ha-Mashiach, in the coming of Mashiach, and even though he will delay, Nevertheless, I will wait for him every day that he will come. And this is one of the basic tenets of our religion, waiting for Mashiach, understanding that Mashiach is imminently coming, being mitzapel Yeshua, waiting for the Yeshua. And it's so much a part of our entire religion that every Shemona Esrei, quite a number of brachas, three times a day, it's part of benching. It's a tremendous, tremendous part of our entire Avodah Hashem. It's one of the first questions they ask when you come up to Shemayim. And here's a very important question to think about. What will life be like when Mashiach comes? What will my day-to-day be like? What will my nine-to-five be like? What will I be doing in that time? Now, obviously, some things are pretty clear. We know that there'll be peace in the world. We know that we'll all live in Israel. We know that the base of Migdish will be rebuilt. We know that there are kabanas. But what will I actually be doing? What will I be feeling? What would my experiences be? Will I be the same person? What what will I be actually experiencing then? And if you tell me that kind of glassy, I'd look like, who can know? Mashiach, who, who, who could possibly know? I'd like to share with you one simple mushal. Imagine the following. Imagine it's a February day, night, and you go out and you see a man shivering, all bundled up with three large suitcases, and you say to him, hi, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm waiting for a cab. Oh, I see. Where are you going? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? You have the suitcases. I know. I, I, I don't know. Well, you're waiting for a cab, right? Yeah. Take you to the airport, right? Well, where are you flying? I, I don't know. Well, you don't know where you're going. How'd you pack the suitcases? If you go into the tropics, you need shorts. If you go into the <clears throat> Siberia, you need heavy winter clothing. How did you pack if you don't know where you're going? Now, obviously, that conversation never happened <clears throat> because for a man to pack his suitcases, he has to know very well where he's headed. And if we say the words, <clears throat> I'm waiting for Mashiach, Mashiach is coming, <clears throat> imminently it's going to be here, it's very difficult for me to believe myself if I don't think about what it's going to be like, what I'm going to be doing then, <clears throat> what am I going to feel like, what am I going to experience? And I'd like to take <clears throat> a few minutes to analyze that exact concept. What's it going to be like? And let's begin with a Gemara and Sukkah that's very eye-opening. <clears throat> the Gemara says, <clears throat> The entire world will be gathered. <clears throat> the entire world gathered by family Everyone there for a horrible, horrible eulogy. Rashi says the kind of eulogy that a man says over his only son, bitter tears, crying, crying, the entire world gathered for this horrible, horrible event. What is the eulogy for? For the Yetzirah, for the Sutton, for the evil inclination that is killed. Where it says, evil inclination, why are you crying? Hayaspeid, you're making a hespid. <clears throat> you should be dancing a jig. It's finally over. The sultan, the HR is gone. Be joyful. And Gemara <clears throat> answers, this is exactly what we learned. Lasi <clears throat> Lovo, in the days to come, in the time of Mashiach, maybe HaKadosh Baruch Hu Le'etzar V'Shochto. Hashem will bring the Yetzar and Hashem will kill it. B'vnei HaTzadikim V'vnei in front of the Tzadikim, in front of the righteous, and in front of the wicked, every human being will be there. Everyone gathered. Tzadikim nidim melahem kehar To the tzadikim, the Yetzirah looked like a powerful, mighty mountain. To the Rishoyim, to the wicked ones, nidim melahem kehut asara. The Yetzirah looked like a thin, thin little thread. 
Both groups, the Sadiqim, see this powerful mountain and they cry. The Rishayim see this thin little thread and they cry, crying, crying, crying. The Sadiqim cry and say, How is it possible that we conquered this giant? Look at the size of that mountain. Look at the enormity of it. How is it possible that we won? And the Sadiqim cry. The Rishayim see a different image. They see a thin hair, a very thin thread, and they also cry. And they say the words, how is it possible that we couldn't have vanquished that little nothing? How is it possible we fell prey to that? And the Gemara explains that is the way of the Sahara. The first time he comes to you, it's like a thin thread, very easy to resist. If you do, you're fine. If you give in, the next time it's two threads and three threads and four threads and you give in and you give in and eventually get tied to that chair with a rope that's powerful enough to hold an ox because thread after thread after thread it's her builds and builds even the nation becomes stronger and stronger and that's the nature of the Yitzhara. And I'd like to analyze these two sects and see if we can understand what this Gemara is sharing with us and what it means to tell us. Now let's begin with the wicked. <clears throat> the Rishayim cry. They see this thin thread and they say, wow, how is it possible that we failed? What were they experiencing at that moment? So to understand that, I'd like to share with you an interesting thought. A few months ago, I was invited to join a Shabbaton for Minyan Shalanu. Minyan Shalanu is a wonderful organization in Lakewood that deals with the youth at risk. And these are fellows who are way, <clears throat> way off the off the end. It's a beautiful organization. They take them in and they really do fantastic work. And I was actually very excited at the opportunity to be at the Shabbaton because I feel it's very, it's vital work and I welcomed it greatly. So I took my wife, we went for Shabbos. My session was in the afternoon, early, early afternoon. And I had these guys and I spent the first maybe 15, 20 minutes giving them my most powerful, meaningful, passionate schmooze. And then I opened the floor to questions. And the questions came from every direction, left, center, right, question after question. And if you listen to the schmooze, you know that I'm not shy when it comes to answering questions. So I answered very bluntly and very to the point, one after another, after another, after another, until one question was asked and I couldn't answer it. A 15-year-old boy asked the question and I couldn't answer the question. Now, when I explain to you what the question is, you'll understand it's not that it's such a deep philosophical query. It's not that it's some <clears throat> pella. I couldn't answer the question because I didn't have words in his language that he would be able to understand. The question was, <clears throat> if we're getting high, <clears throat> is there any difference between whiskey and marijuana? Any difference between getting drunk and smoking <clears throat> pot? That was the question. And because I couldn't answer it in words that this fellow would understand, I turned to one of the mentors who was in the room with me. And this is a fellow about 27, 28. And he went through just the sort of journey that these boys had gone through. And because I spoke to him before, I understood that he had an awful lot of bark on him. He had been through a lot. And I asked him to answer that question. And he turns to these fellows and he said, you know something? Alcoholism is a horrible disease, and it's so difficult to kick a habit, and it really is something to be afraid of. But you should know, he said, I deal with fellows all the time in our community, all the time. Not once did I have an issue with an alcoholic. You see, to get addicted to alcohol takes a long time. Two years, three years of heavy drinking, you guys won't be doing that. But I can tell you that, <clears throat> excuse me, in our community, on a regular basis, I've attended funerals. <clears throat> I've pulled people out of the worst situations, and every one of them were drug-related. <clears throat> because while it takes a long time to get addicted to alcohol, it doesn't take long at all <clears throat> to get addicted to drugs. And then he shared with us <clears throat> a few war stories. He explained <clears throat> that one fellow became so addicted that he desperately craved drugs, but he could no longer get high. So he tried more and more, but he couldn't get high. And he finally asked for help, 
And his mentor <clears throat> picked him up from his basement. The fellow, the 15-year-old boy, was stark naked on the basement floor, unconscious in a puddle of his own vomit. And then he told us about funerals that he attended of fellows who didn't make it. And then he explained his own <clears throat> history of drug abuse and the agony, the torture of what it was like. But there was one story that I think summed it up. He described a 15-year-old boy who came to him for help. And he said, I've hit bottom. It's horrific. It's hard. I got to get out. You got to help me. And the mentor said to him, I can't help you right now. You're high. <clears throat> we got to get you into detox. We got to get you into rehab center. But the first rule is they won't take you if you're high. And the fellow says, I got to get out. I'm climbing out of my skin. I have to get off this stuff. I got, it's killing me. The mentor said, here's the story. <clears throat> I'm going to pick you up in the morning. You could still get high one more time as the morning. You still get high in the afternoon if you want. <clears throat> but that's it. I'm going to pick you up in the morning between the early afternoon and the morning. <clears throat> stuff will be out of your system. You'll be sober. I'll pick you up. I'll drive you right to detox. We'll put your life back in order. And that was the plan. The mentor shows up in the morning, and this boy is as high as a kite. Tremendously high. And the mentor said, I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. He was a 15-year-old boy. He didn't have a car. He didn't have money. Where did he get the drugs? And then he found out. You see, this fellow took his last dose in the early afternoon, and he had nothing left. And he began withdrawing. But when you start going through the withdrawal symptoms, you start trembling and shaking, and you're hot and you're cold, and you feel like your very skin is being peeled off you, and it's the most horrible feeling, and it got worse and worse, and by 9 o'clock at night, he was screaming and raving, and he went begging to his mother, Mommy, help me, help me, help me, please, and he was falling on the floor, trembling and shaking. And a Jewish mother in Lakewood, New Jersey, a very fine from woman, took her son in her car to go buy drugs with her money because she couldn't stand to see the agony that this boy was in. Well, anyway, we spent two hours together as a group, these fellows, myself, this mentor, and I felt that we covered an awful lot of ground, a lot of ashkafa a lot of warnings, and I felt a lot was accomplished. And I walked out of that room, and I went straight to the bathroom, closed the door, began crying, and I couldn't stop crying. And would you like to know why? Because the question in my mind was, how many of these fellows are going to be the next statistics? How many of them are going to be dead within a year? But you may say to me, what do you mean? How could that be? And they just heard from the horse's mouth how bad it is, how dangerous it is, how unsatisfying, how miserable you are when you're on this stuff. How is it possible that they would use drugs after? And the answer really is quite simple. I'm a little smarter than that. You know, I know when to stop. I'll use drugs in a way that I won't get addicted. Don't worry about me. I'm okay. I'll take care of it. And I'd like to share with you a profound observation. Would you like to know what is the greatest cause of sin? If you ask someone, what's the greatest cause of sin? People will offer you all types of theories. Well, temptation. Oh, yeah, that's it. That's desire. Oh, sure, that's a big one. <clears throat> money. The love of money. Sure, that, that's killed people all across the centuries. Anger. Jealousy. <clears throat> if you ask people what is the greatest cause of sin you'll hear an entire list. And I'd like to share with you what I believe is the greatest cause of sin. Not money, not desire, not temptation. The greatest cause of sin is stupidity. Stupidity because every mitzvah that Hashem commanded us in is for our benefit. Our benefit in this world and our benefit in the world to come. Every Aveira that Hashem warned us against damages us here and damages us in the world to come. If a person leads a Torah lifestyle and is really into it, he enjoys life to the greatest maximum extent. 
and every Avera that you'll ever get into, forget the world to come, makes you miserable within six months, within a year, within two years, and you'll find yourself in a vastly unhappy place. And if you'd like to know what is the single greatest cause of sin, it's stupidity. Not recognizing how foolish this is. Not realizing how dumb I am. Not realizing while this may seem like a little nothing now, it's something that I'm going to regret dramatically in a little while from now. And this is not a schmooze about avoiding drugs. This is a reality of life. How many times do people end up down the path level after level after level? They find themselves somewhere deep, deep into it. And they don't know how they got there exactly, but they're in it deep. And at that stage, they're in it so deep that they don't know how they're going to get themselves out. And if they fight bitter, bitter battles, maybe they have a shot at it. But if you study the human condition, you'll find this over and over and over. I cannot tell you how many couples I deal with. And the screaming and the yelling and the ranting and the raving. And it's always her fault, his fault, her fault, his fault. Never mind. Always the other one. And every divorce has that point of, listen, You expect me to live with an abusive man? You expect me to live with a woman who's such and such? And ironically, I've dealt with many, many couples. And it is true. There are guys that are abusive. There are guys that are controlling. But isn't it strange that every divorce, every divorce, the woman will always use that line, He was abusive and controlling. And again, while it's sometimes true, I'd like to share with you, I've been involved in many cases where it's not true at all. I've been involved in many cases where he was a lovely guy, but she flew on a broom at night. And she was the problem. But guess what? When you dish it out and you dish it out, you dish it out, you get it back. But she doesn't see it. She doesn't recognize it. There was a letter that a Basimedrish fellow wrote to the judge. You have to hear these words. His mother was claiming that she was an abused woman. Husband yelled at her, screamed at her, was controlling and abusive. And this fellow wrote a letter to the judge. And it said effectively as follows. It is true that my father raised his voice. It is true that my father yelled. But I don't ever remember my father yelling, not once, when it wasn't preceded by my mother yelling first. It's true he yelled back. It's true he yelled when she started. But I never heard him yell first. And it's a very interesting thing. If you have a temper and you get angry and angry and angry and it builds and it builds, you will find yourself in a very unhappy place. You'll find yourself in a situation where your wife doesn't want to be with you anymore. Your boss lets you go. Your children can't stand you. And you're in a place of extraordinary difficulty. And at that moment in life, you're in big trouble. Because it really is a bitter, bitter battle. And you know what you're guilty of right then? You're guilty of the sin of, excuse my saying, it's stupidity. But not stupidity when you lose your temper now. Stupidity not realizing it years ago as you were going down this garden path. And any time we involve ourselves in behaviors whether it be self-centered, whether it be abusive in whatever which way, any time we involve ourselves in Averas, we find ourselves in vastly, vastly unhappy waters within a short amount of time. If you'd like to understand why the Rishayim, why the wicked cry, it's very simple. When Mashiach comes, everyone gets it. Like the sun, that midday shining bright, every human being sees Hashem right here. And every human being understands why we were created. And every human being has an incredible drive to be close to Hashem, to do what's right, to do what's proper, to grow. There's peace in the world because no one's fighting. Fight. Hashem's here. Hashem's watching. Hashem gives everything. But why fight? Why do that? The human condition dramatically changes because every human being understands life. Every human being understands why we're here. And every human being understands that every mitzvah in the Torah 
is the greatest good for the human being, the greatest good in this world, the greatest good in the world to come. And what the Rishoyim see in one fell swoop is idiot that I was. Look what I gave into it. What a thin little thread. What did I sell my soul for? I gave it up for something so passing and so fleeting. And of course, it gained strength and became stronger and stronger. And then I got to a point where I couldn't extract myself. And I do believe there'll be a lot of people on Yom Adin who will look at life very, very differently, who will look back on their previous things that they were involved in and have a very different take on it. And I certainly understand why the Rishayim cry, because in that one moment of great clarity, they understand the purpose of life, understand why they were here, and suddenly everything changes. Why do people sin? We get confused. We got lost. At the end of the day, what you lost was sobriety, sanity. What you lost was intelligent thinking. And you headed down a path that brought you to a very bad place. So I certainly understand why the Rishayim cry. But why did a Sadiqim, why did a righteous cry? This should be a red banner day for them. They just... Mashiach comes, they finally see it, and they see how much they accomplished, and they see how much they won. They see they got it right. They should be dancing a jig. Why are they crying? And Rashi explains why they cry. And they cry because at that moment, when Mashiach comes, and that light suddenly explodes, and everyone sees life differently, they're able to look back and see something that they never perceived before. And what is that? They see the Yetzirah on their footstep, nagging them, bothering them. They see the Yetzirah day after day, nagging and bothering. And in that one moment, they see a lifetime of memories of all of the pain that the Sutton caused them. And they're so overwhelmed by that pain that they begin crying a horrible, horrible eulogy. And that's how Rashi explains why the Rishayim cry? I'm sorry, why the Sadiqim cry? But if you think about that Rashi, I think it should be rather perplexing. Why? Because, wait a minute, these are the Tzadikim. To the Tzadik, the Yetzirah appears as a thin thread. And the Tzadik says, no, he doesn't give in. How much of a fight is that? What's the big deal? Ask a guy, after trying one cigarette, how difficult is it to quit? Nothing at all. Ask a guy after 10 years of smoking two packs a day how difficult it is to quit. The answer is, <clears throat> it's Gehenim. But these are the tzaddikim. They don't give in. They see the end game. They see the danger. So how much trouble could the HR be giving them? How much difficulty could it be causing them? Why are they suddenly overcome with this tremendous, tremendous tsar, this pain? This Rashi seems very difficult to understand. And to understand this Rashi, I'd like to share with you a perspective that I believe is often missed. I grew up in a generation of sons of Holocaust survivors. Many of my friends, either one parent or both parents, had been in the camps. My father, particularly, he was born in Berlin, but he, he made it through a different path. He was in England during the years of the war. But many of my friends had one or two Holocaust survivors, and I was a part of these families, and I got to see these people up close. And I'd like to share with you, they went through an awful, an awful lot in their lives. If you'd like to understand what it was like for them, I'll share with you one illustration. One boy, when he was maybe 10 or 11, he went to sleep at a friend's house, and he discovered something. He slept through the whole night, and he made a discovery that night. You see, up until that point, he had never slept a whole night. you know why? <clears throat> because every night of his life, his mother would wake up screaming in horror because of the nightmares that she was having. And when this boy went to someone else's house, and the mother didn't wake up in the middle of the night screaming, he made a discovery. Not all mommies do that. My mother went through something, and not every mother went through that. Meaning to say, if you went through Bergen-Belsen, if you went 
through the camps, you brought with you a lot of scars, a lot of baggage, a lot of stuff that wasn't so easy to just shake off. And while it's true that these people brought with them an awful lot, I'd like to share with you, I was in quite a number of houses, and if I would ask myself the following question, if I would compare the Simcha Sachaim, the joy that they had, compared to the average person today, I would say there's no comparison. Because while these people went through horrors, there was a joy in their life, they were alive, vibrant, and as much as they carried it with them, there was a Simcha Zachayim that I don't see today. If you look around people today, all I see is complete absence. Not there. Running and doing and busy and running and doing and doing. Uh, and no one, no one is there. They're not present. They're not alive because they're not even, I don't know. I don't know what they are. And if you look around the existence that we lead today, I'd like to share with you something. There is a tremendous amount of distraction, of being involved in everything other than actually focusing on life, actually enjoying life. And it's difficult for me to illustrate this because it's such a strange phenomenon. You have to almost go to a different generation and see what normalcy is so that you can come back and say, wait a minute, something is wrong around here. Let me share with you one simple example. There has never been a generation as wealthy as ours. There has never been this opulence, this amount of phenomenal luxuries and sheer wealth. The average tax-paying citizen today enjoys luxuries that the kings of yesteryear cannot imagine or envision. Everyone, from the poorest to the richest, today lives with the type of luxuries that a hundred years ago were unimaginable. First of all, they didn't exist. But even if they did, certainly the average person didn't have them. And even very, very wealthy people didn't have them. There has never been a wealthier generation than today's generation. And at the same time, there's never been a more needy generation. There's never been a generation who needed as much who gained so little satisfaction, so little enjoyment from the property and goods that they have. And there's never been such need for material possessions. As an observation, let me just try to make this clear. In life, you have needs. Every one of us is so wealthy that anything that we could possibly need, we absolutely positively should have. As a matter of fact, if you think about it, industry, production, manufacturing in the world we live in should cease. Basically, we all have enough money to buy what we need. If we needed it, we would have it already. And the whole idea of advertising, the whole idea of consumer marketplaces, the whole idea of Amazon shouldn't exist. And yet it does. How does it exist And you have to study advertising to appreciate how it exists. You see, advertising can never sell you something that you need. If you needed it, you would have had it long ago. But Madison Avenue is way too sly, way too clever to ever sell you that. What they sell you is the need. You need this. You have to have this. When you get this, then you'll finally arrive. Then you'll finally be happy. And what the ads, what the billboards, what they're selling day and night, they're selling needs. You need this, you have to have it, you need it, you have to have it. And as strange as it sounds, we buy into it hook, line, and sinker. I can't give enough examples, I'll use a few obvious ones. I have a wife, I have four daughters, Baruch Hashem. They're not fancy, they're not extremely materialistic, but they never, ever have anything to wear. It's, there's a chasuk, I don't have a thing to wear, I don't have a thing to wear. Um, excuse me, there's a closet full of clothing. Is it entire, what do you mean you don't have a thing to wear? I don't have a thing to wear. Have you ever met a woman who has enough clothing? Now, of course, listen, that was last season's, and I wore that to the last wedding, and it doesn't go with it, and the, 
Do you understand that that is extraordinarily wealthy? But it's not just wealthy because you're being bombarded by ads and ads and ads and fashionable ads and fashionable decrees as to how you should dress, what shoes and what you have to have. You need it. But it's not just women and, and clothing. It's men and cars and watches and houses. And it's everything across the gamut. You're being bombarded, whether you recognize it or not, by at least 1,500 media messages a day. That's what they count. They count the average U.S. citizen will be hit by 1,500 marketing or advertising messages a day. And all day long, you're being hit again and again. You need it. You have to have it. You'll finally be happy when you get it. And if you're not sure that I'm right, finish the sentence for me. I'll be happy when... And everybody has a little end to that sentence. I'll be happy when... And almost everyone has some kind of materialistic answer to that. I'll be happy when I'm rich. Ah, then I'll be happy. I'll be happy when I finally get that beautiful home. I'll be happy when I get the corner mansion. I'll be happy when I get published. I'll be happy when... Everyone has that I'll be happy when. Amazingly, oftentimes they'll get the whatever it was and they're still not happy. And they're on this treadmill of needing more and more and more. And understand, being in the generation we're in, you're being brainwashed day and night, day and night. You need, you need, you need. And they are sophisticated. And they are crafty. And they are very, very well skilled at doing what they do. To guarantee one thing, you will not be satisfied. You will need more and more and more. You are a consumer. A consumer is one who consumes. And you will be fed appetites and hungers, hungers and hungers. And it's not just about needing material possessions. If you look around the world we live in, there's so much unhappiness so much lack of satisfaction, so much of just, I don't know. You know, when I was a kid growing up, anorexia was something that almost didn't exist. I remember there was one girl we heard of, something, a rumor, and now in any seminary, in any high school, the Manahelis Lanhola are trained how to deal with this problem. And if you start looking around, there are so many emotional problems and so many issues and so many unhappy people and so many things that are lacking. And it's a very strange situation we're in. Never in the course of history has there been this much wealth and never have we been as needy. Never has been this much opportunity and never has been these many unhappy people. Never have there been as many good psychological tools, whether it be counselors, therapists, books, and never have there been as many psychologically unhealthy people. A very strange reality that we live in. And if you'd like to understand it on a fundamental level, you have to recognize what happens when Mashiach comes. When that chauffeur blast spreads across the world, and in a flash of light, every human being recognizes the truth. Every one of us are going to look back on the world that we had been living in, the life that we had been leading, and we'll look back with such incredulity, like, what was I thinking? What was my problem? And so many of our problems are self-induced. I'm not telling you it's easy to deal with anxiety. I'm not telling you OCD is easy to cure. I'm not telling you that when you live in a world of opulence and plenty, it's easy to have less than your neighbor. But I am telling you that when Mashiach comes and every human being gets it, gone are all those problems. Anxiety, anxiety. Hashem is right here. Nervous. What do you mean nervous? Hashem is right here. But more than that, this balance... The world itself has a cadence, has a normalcy to it. So many of the emotional problems, the distress, stem from the fact that things are so chaotic, so out of control. 
Do you know that one of the signs of Mashiach being ready to come is when chutzpah is so outrageous that children don't respect their parents, they mouth off to their mother and mouth off to their father? Have you ever seen a generation like this? If you're born into this generation, maybe you don't recognize it. But I was born not a hundred years ago, and I was a mechutzif, I was a wild kid. In my wildest dreams, I never would have opened a mouth as kids do. To, first, I would have gotten smacked by anybody. If I were a 10-year-old and opened a mouth to one of my friend's parents, smack. That's not the world kids live in today. You don't touch them. First of all, you get arrested. Secondly, you probably damage them because they're so fragile. But when you live in a world without rules, without respect, without authority, without normalcy, people get very, very unbalanced. When you live in a world where divorce is as common as the cold, where the idea of a child being brought up in a wholesome family is almost non-existent, certainly in the world at large. When that's the world you live in, well, guess what? The very fabric, the very foundation of your upbringing is unsettled. And is it any wonder when there's so much turmoil in terms of what you can be, who you can be, what you should do, where you should fit in, when there's so much confusion and so much change? Is it any wonder that there's so many people who are unbalanced, unhealthy? When Mashiach comes, everything returns to a state of order. Not because Hashem miraculously changes anything, but because Hashem reveals Himself and every human being sees Hashem right here. As I recognize the gravity, as I know that an object is solid, and I sense Hashem's presence, I'm aware of it fully and completely, and that single cognition changes humanity. Because every human being recognizes why they're here. Every human being recognizes what they should do. See, we all have an ashama. The only reason we're pulled otherwise is because there's another part. There's a nefesh Bahami, an animal soul, there's a yetzahara, there's a sutton. But if that part's gone, if that part's not effective, my neshama sees and understands, and every human being will see with absolute clarity what's good for them, and they'll do it. And they'll avoid what's bad for them, and guess what? <clears throat> That's exactly the Torah. And if you'd like to know why it is that the tzaddikim cry on that moment, it's because even they perceive something that they didn't perceive their whole life. Now, much the Sultan was bothering them and nagging them and the amount of effort and energy he put into getting them to fail. You see, it's not just 1,500 messages a day for materialism. When I was a bacher in yeshiva, one of my friends liked to stay up on the news, but in those days, U.S. News and World Report wasn't 100% kosher, the Rashiva's Rebbitzin used to get the, paper, the magazine to her house. She would clip out any picture that wasn't appropriate. <clears throat> My friend would pick it up and he would read the kosher U.S. News and World Report. You can't do that today to any newspaper. You can't do that to any periodical. It'll be ribbons. It won't be anything. And even the articles. <clears throat> it's a world that's so far gone. And what that means in plain, simple language is obviously <clears throat> if a fellow is involved with desire and doesn't want to be but he's caught down that path... And then he becomes in the stage, we'll call it addicted, and he's fighting bitter, bitter battles. I understand that his life is Gehenna. I understand that his life is so fever-pitched, and he's constantly battling, and he's constantly fighting, and it's a very unhappy existence. But what about a guy who protected himself the entire time he was a single fellow? And he got married, and he really works on himself very well. He can't walk into the street without constantly being bombarded. One of the biggest brachas in my own life, when I was 19, my eyesight went. I had perfect eyesight, never had a problem. And I got to base medish, an age also, my eyesight went. The biggest bracha. I would walk into the street, my glasses were off, but I could, not a problem whatsoever. But do you understand what I'm saying? It's abnormal. The amount of desire and taiva that's out there, the promiscuity, the... The amount of temptation is so powerful and so unending, we don't perceive it now. We don't recognize it for what it is. <clears throat> but when Mashiach comes, suddenly the tzaddikim look back and they see that nagging, constant Russia 
<clears throat> trying to get them to slip, trying to get them to sin, and in that one moment they get it. But folks, <clears throat> for the record, you and I probably aren't Sadiqim. We hope we're good. We hope we're, you know, Bainanim, maybe even Bainanim plus. But I don't know if we're on the level of David, Moshe, Aaron. I don't know if we're on the level of a stipler. I don't know if we're on the level of being called Sadiqim. And what I'd like to share with you is a very, very important understanding. A Tzadik is the one who always avoids that sin. Anytime it comes to him, that thin, thin thread, he runs away from it. Yet when Mashiach comes, he looks back at his life and says, Oi, look at the pain, look at the torture. Do you know what he caused me constantly day in and day out? But the Tzadik, again, is the one who kept winning, kept running away. What about us? Many times we win and many times we don't. Many times we take one step forward and two steps back and two steps forward and three steps back and we end up spinning our wheels. We end up doing things. And I guarantee that if you are an occupant of this planet, you have at least one area that is really, really problematic. One area that is really, really an issue. Let's assume for a minute it's a little bit self-centered, you know. I'm not saying the world was created for me, but, you know, it's, it's about me. And let's assume you're married. And lo and behold, my wife demands that you this and that and that, and she demands attention. Demand, what is your problem? What is your problem? And I can create an awful lot of difficulty in my marriage. And I could become more self-centered, and I could create a lot of friction, and I create a lot of fights, and I create back and forth and back and forth. But here's the point. I don't see it now. I don't recognize it now. I cannot tell you how many times I've had couples in front of me. And I said to my wife after, I don't believe it. They're made for each other. They're made for each other and they're living in Gehenna. Because either he or she just doesn't get it. And of course, everyone else is to blame. And of course she blames him as being abusive and obnoxious and she doesn't understand that she is the cause. And he blames her for being whatever, emotionally distant or carping and complaining. And he doesn't realize that he is the cause. Well, guess what? When Mashiach comes and in a flash of brilliant light and we look back on our lives will suddenly see with tremendous clarity every mistake that I made that cost me such harm, cost me such suffering. Because whether it's anger, whether it's self-centeredness, whether it's anything, it comes to haunt me, comes to hurt me. Now I don't see it. Now I don't recognize it. But when I step away, when Mashiach comes, I look back on it, I'll see life in a very different way. And what I'd like to share with you is not the guilt that, oh my goodness, I'm going to feel so bad then. What I'd like to share with you is much more profound. And that is, the life that we are leading now is not a life. The life that we are leading now is vacuous, empty. Do you know anybody who tastes their food? Do you know anybody who really listens to music? Do you, do you know anybody who looks at a sunrise and says, Wow, let me take that in. We're so distracted. Our attention is so fractured. We're so busy and doing, and we're so plagued with so many different things going on in our brain that we can't enjoy the life that we are leading. And I'd like to share with you a muscle to just try to encapsulate it. Muncie has some beautiful homes, beautiful homes. I saw a home a few weeks ago. I don't know, I don't know if it topped all of them, but it was gorgeous, set way back up on a hill. The, the property itself was huge. On one side of the house was a full basketball court. I mean, a full basketball, you know, two baskets. Next to the basketball court was a volleyball court. Next to that was the pool. And in front of the pool was the house. And I walked into this stately mansion, double door, 
and full in height all the way up to the ceiling, this gorgeous mansion. And you see on one room, beautiful wood laid swarm room. In the other room, beautiful mahogany. The entire place was gorgeous. And you walk into the kitchen and, you know, women use that expression, a kitchen to die for. I don't think there are any kitchens worth dying for, but it was gorgeous. But here was the more interesting thing. You go to the basement. The full width and length of the house opened up all the way. And in the middle, plenty of exercise equipment and there's a sauna. The most interesting thing about the house was that when I came in, a young man opened the door for me. And when I was walking around this house and I saw it and it was just so magnificent, at a certain point I said to him, this house is gorgeous. And he said to me, I guess it does the job. Why did he say that? Would you like to know why he said it? Because that house is what's known as a sober house. After you're done detox, you can't go back into society. It's too dangerous. You'll be triggered. You'll relapse. There's a house where 12 young men live in it, along with drug counselors and a special program. And they live there for six months or a year. And you know why that young man could not see the beauty of this house? Because he was so preoccupied with one thing, staying sober. He was so burnt out from his drug abuse. And he had suffered so, and his entire simchas was so lacking that he couldn't enjoy the beautiful basketball court, the beautiful scenery. He couldn't enjoy the house. And I understand that. But I don't understand that if you look at people today, that is us. That is our life. We live in a world that's beautiful. We have such luxuries and there's so little joy and so little attention. We're just not there. And the reason why I share that with you is to perceive and understand one simple thing. The life that we are leading today is not the way it's supposed to be. Shira malos b'shuva Hashem. We say it every Shabbos before benching. B'shuva Hashem etzion. When Hashem returns, excuse me, us to Sion, hayinu kecholmim will be like dreamers. And the Yaivitz explains what that means. In the Yarish Devash, he says, when a person's asleep, they're not awake, they're not alert. And what they see in a dream is, is fuzzy and, and, and unclear. <clears throat> We're sound asleep. <clears throat> We're living one-sixtieth, he says, of a real life. <clears throat> We're not there. And the reason why that's important is to recognize that the life we are leading today is not the way it's supposed to be. And it's not because we're not working hard enough, and not because I'm not learning enough, and not because I'm not learning enough Musr, and I'm not guilty of anything other than being in a very, very long, bitter gullus. And you have to understand that all of the suffering, and all of the OCD, and the anxieties, and the depressions, and the everything, and all of the cutting, and all of the the divorce and everything that goes on in our society at large and everything that happens within our own mind is not the way it's supposed to be. Hashem created a beautiful world. Hashem made colors and fragrances. Hashem made a flower with the most delicious aromas. Hashem made food with the most delicate flavors. Hashem made an apple and a pear and an orange. And Hashem made beautiful scenes because Hashem is a native, Hashem is a giver. And Hashem wants us to be happy in this world. But we can't. We can work on it. And the more person is involved in Torah, the more person adopts the Torah lifestyle, the more he's happier he'll be. But at the end of the day, it's a very, very long, bitter gullus. And the single message I would like to transmit is that we've been in this gullus so long We've been in exile for so long, we don't even know what it's like to be alive anymore. We have nothing to compare it to. We look at life and assume it's, hey, things are great, this is normal, I'm doing great. We don't even know what being a human being means. We don't even know what being happy means. We don't even know what it means to be alive. And you don't have to look very far because there are so many people who just exist and are suffering 
<clears throat> suffering with thoughts, <clears throat> suffering with self-esteem issues, suffering with jealousies and angers and so many things. And again, should you work on it 100%, <clears throat> the more you work and the more you grow, the happier you'll be. And the happiest people <clears throat> are the people who grow <clears throat> in a Torah-directed way. There's no question about it. But at the end of the day, you also have to recognize <clears throat> that it's beyond our ability to change. Because there's so much out there and so much working against us, and so much fighting against us, that we have no hope. I mean, we're going to fail? No. We could succeed, we can grow, fight challenges, grow, and really become somebody. But to live a truly happy life as Hashem intended it, we can't do. And if you'd like to know why we yearn for Mashiach, and why we beg Hashem for Mashiach, it's because of all of the pain, because of all of the suffering, because of all of the lack of direction, because of all of the things that people out there are going through, and it's because of the lack in my own life. Do you know what happens when Mashiach comes? Every human being has a desire to grow, to accomplish. You know what it's like to wake up in the morning? Let's go! Hashem is present. I can change myself. I can... There's a love of life. There's an exuberance. Life is beautiful. And when you fundamentally understand life, when you're growing, when you're accomplishing, there's a sense of balance, a sense of harmony. You could look at a sunrise and go, wow, that's beautiful. You can enjoy the food you eat because you're alive. But you can't do it now. Should you try? Yes. Should you work on it? 100%. But at the end of the day, this has been a very, very long very, very bitter gullus. And it's imperative that we remember that this is not normal. It's not the way it's supposed to be. I think this Gemara shares with us a tremendous understanding. When Mashiach comes, that chauffeur blast cries out, every human being will be gathered for that hespid. And that horrible eulogy, tears and tears, bitter, bitter tears. And the Rishoyim see this little, little thread. The Sadiqim see this powerful mountain. Each cries. The Russia cries because at that moment he gets it. How much torture I caused myself. My bad habits, my things, my issues that I didn't work on, I didn't grow, I didn't accomplish, became such a huge burden. They destroyed my life. And what I gained from it. I didn't gain the world to come. I certainly lost this world and they're showing cry because they see what they got themselves into. <clears throat> Much like that drug addict, if he could see the end, <clears throat> he'd run from it. But then it's too late. And they're showing see how they wrecked their lives. But the tzaddikim also cry. <clears throat> because even the tzaddik at that moment recognizes something that he never perceived when he was <clears throat> in the regular living. <clears throat> what he didn't perceive was the extent of the abnormality and the extent of the pressures and the pulls and the drives and desires and, and running back and forth, in whatever area it is. And everyone has at least one, and there's plenty of other extra ones. And even the tzaddik, who's the one who always avoids, always stops before the first cigarette, even he, just the pressure and the constant battling and the constant fight to not look, to not do, to not say. At that moment when Mashiach comes, he looks back on a history, a lifetime of that, and the pain is so unimaginable, he begins crying and crying and crying. And this concept is something we need to understand. It is true that there are many battles to fight in life. It is true we can win some, we can lose some, but to understand the fever pitch of the battle is not supposed to be there. The intensity of it, the amount of trouble and issues and things going on is not supposed to be as it is now. And the result is, we don't have life. We don't have simcha sachayim lacking. Can we grow in it? Absolutely. We should and we could. But at the end of the day, until Mashiach comes, it's not there. And if you want to know why we desperately yearn for Mashiach, certainly the base of Migdash, Hashem's proximity, and certainly the avoda, but to be alive, to be an Eved Hashem, to recognize the value of my accomplishments, to recognize why I'm here, not to be constantly pulled and and distorted with so many confusing issues and thoughts, to be at peace with myself, serving my Creator as I was made to serve Him. 
And this is something that bears understanding, that bears focusing on. Tisha B'Av is a mighty sad day. It's a day that we sit on the floor and we cry. Because at least once a year, maybe three weeks, maybe nine days, but at least one day of the year, we have to wake up and get it. The life we are leading is not normal. Society we're living in is not normal. Forget the promiscuity. Forget orientations. Forget whether he's a he or she's a she's a whatever the craziness that's going on. Within our own community, the amount of confusion, the amount of unhappiness, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And once a year, it's important to stop and recognize we need Mashiach. We need an end to this bitter, bitter gullus so that we can think as Jews are supposed to think. We could have values as Jews are supposed to have values. We could have perceptions as a human being is supposed to. And I want to close with one last thought. The Marsha on this Gemara argues with Rashi. Rashi says the Sadiqim cry because they see the mountain. Why do they cry? Rashi says because in that moment they remember all the pain. They see the Yetzirah. They see every memory come flooding back and they see the pain he caused them. The Marsha says it cannot be. It can't be that that would cause them such crying because at the end of the day they won. At the end of the day they were victorious. And the Marsha says that's not pshat. He says, do you know why the tzaddik can cry? And do you know why they say a eulogy? And they say a eulogy over their best friend who died. The Yitzhahara is dead. And at that moment, they fully get it. They recognize how valuable a friend the Satan was. You see, Hashem created the Satan for one particular purpose. To challenge you. To push you a little bit further. <clears throat> but like a skilled personal trainer he knows exactly what you're capable of and knows exactly what area to push all day every day 364 24 7 he's on the job with one goal to challenge you to make you choose to make you become a bigger greater person and what the tzaddikim recognize in that blazing flash of reality is how valuable an ally he was. And what the tzaddikim realize is they never would have become what they become had it not been for his constant pushing them and constantly challenging them. Do you ever notice that life is one ending challenge and then another non-ending challenge and then another one after that? And just when this area of life seems to be in order, something else pops up. And then just when this gets together, something else. And it seems to be a never-ending cacophony of noise of things happening. It's not by accident. It's designed. It's designed specifically to challenge you, to make you into the great human being that you can be. And if you're not challenged, you're not drawn out, you don't become a fraction of what you could have been. And what the tzaddikim realize at that moment in time is, wow, what a valuable ally. My best friend died. And the Chavetz Chaim explains, as much as we yearn for Mashiach, as much as we beg Hashem, please, please end this golos, Chavetz Chaim cautions us, go slow. If you succeed in growing in this generation, you can accomplish what you'll never be able to do again. You see, in Mashiach times, everyone gets it. The growth is very slow. It's very gradual. Because at the end of the day, everyone sees Hashem. There is no Yetzirah. There's no desire otherwise. So the growth is methodical, but very, very sluggish. In the world that we live in today, the challenges are so mighty. A person can catapult himself when another challenge, and another challenge, he can grow and grow. He becomes a towering giant within a short amount of time. And if you would like words of Chizik, look at successful people in our generation. Our generation produces gedolim, great, great people. And I don't just mean gedolim who are 70 years of age. I've seen young people, 20-year-olds, who are phenomenal, from solid, good, caring, giving people. I've seen plenty on the opposite side of the spectrum. But when you understand that the challenges of today are immensely difficult, incredibly hard, 
you also understand that if you win, and winning doesn't mean everyone, and winning doesn't mean victoriously slaying the dragon. Winning means you fight the fight, you battle the battle, and you grow slowly, level after level. You can become a giant in our times. Once Mashiach comes, it won't happen. This perspective that we deeply yearn for Mashiach because these times aren't normal, balanced with the understanding of what golden opportunity today is, because in these difficult times, if I grow, if I accomplish what I can do, this is the balance. May Hashem grant us that this be the last time we speak about this subject. May the next Tisha B'Av be a Yom Tov celebrated in Yerushalayim HaBenuyah.